Diversity, equity, and inclusion has been a hot topic in the economic sphere, but it's actually not limited there. This anti-racist infiltration has made a huge mark in the educational realm and now has, for the last couple of years, gained access to Christian institutions and organizations. Under the last step given to white bridge builders in the Be the Bridge 101 guide, Be the Bridge exposes their desire to fundamentally change the church by defeating the white supremacy within it. How do they believe this work is done? Through diversity, equity, and inclusion training, but not merely diversifying the leadership, but working toward equity and inclusion of not only race, but theological views. How might diversity, equity, and inclusion come into your church? Let's dive in. Here at Be The Bridge, we have a great team that has not only created stellar online resources, but is gifted enough to come in and partner with businesses, nonprofits, ministries, and more to create healthy environments for racial reconciliation. If you heard this and see an opportunity for your company and or organization, go to bethebridge.com. That's bethebridge.com. And let our group of skilled, educated trainers curate and facilitate safe and productive discussions and workshops that will develop into bridge building opportunities for true racial reconciliation. If we have everyone sign a diversity pledge, what it would do is give us a bit to use in order to get rid of people who then uh, do not uphold our values. If we want to change the culture, if we want to change the climate on, our, on all of our campuses, then we have to be reflective of the diversity that we're seeking even at the highest level of administration. And so if you look at the cabinet, uh, the vice presidents, the president, there's only one person there who looks like me. We need to do better. We are no longer asking for allies on the issue that we're going for. We need accomplices to be walking with us, tearing down the system as we go. Within the social justice and racial reconciliation movements, terminology has changed from the need for allies to the desire for accomplices. Accomplices contribute to or aid in an activity or process. Allies will vouch from the sidelines. Accomplices join the struggle to be change agents. We need to start seeing action steps. There's multiple ways that people can get involved, take action, to be an activist on their campus. But it's one thing to hire these more African-American educators or people that come into this institution, but you also have to protect them. It has to be more than just rallying them, just hiring them. There has to be provisions put in place for their advancement through this system as well, because that's what we're looking for. It's not enough just to get them. You have to keep them there because the students are looking for them just as well. Representation is the biggest thing to me. And I, think, I think the the first step that people move to is like representation. And I know yeah. you guys talk about this a lot, like yeah. representation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. diversity is not the same thing as equity. Exactly. It is not the same thing as inclusion and voice it's nah. just not i think people kind of stop there like oh we have a diverse yeah, we have a diverse group of musicians now this is diverse worship mm -hmm. and we have many many examples of that but it's it's funded by and funded for and produced by a white church yes, in California. Also, you have to be absolutely cautious of the fact of being white and not letting the white savior complex absolutely come afoot because you cannot overshadow the voices that we are right here that are fighting. And that's what it does in itself. It recenters whiteness. And the people that benefit from that are actually not people that are on the margins, but people that are at the center of power and are shaping all of our theology. People that are at the center of power and are shaping all of our theology. And so, mm -hmm. I think the most important thing um, 
obviously you have to start at representation. You need to have a diverse group. It's one thing to be made equal. It's another thing to be treated equal. It's one thing to be made equal and then treated equal. It's another thing to have equity. And you have that perfectly diverse team. How do you create an environment in which people can actually give voice to that and that to their perspectives? And that requires cultural intelligence, that requires competencies, that requires emotional intelligence, that requires tools that you may not have. Putting a bunch of people up there from the same, from different cultures or different races is not gonna actually create diverse worship mm-hmm. unless you create a space in which they can voice their theology, their perspective, their experience of God. How do you put together a mm-hmm. worship experience from the entrance, kind of from the gathering of, you know, uh, the, the, the church time when people come in to their time mm-hmm. of leading, leaving, including rituals, uh, preaching, uh, the Lord's table, mm-hmm. you know, like how do we create yeah. and design experiences that are more than representational? So and how do we keep away from tokenism? It's mm-hmm. one thing to be made equal, treated equal, have equity, but it's a whole nother thing to have um, retribution and reparations and reconciliation. You won't, you will know racial reconciliation is happening when white people can submit to black people. Yeah. Yeah. When, you can, when you can submit to a black person without, without, kind of this tinge of uh-huh. cultural and heart frustration, but it, uh-huh. it, it'd be willful submission to black uh-huh. leadership. Even even if, if if black women are leading in the church, uh-huh. you know, yeah. it's it, it's very important that there just there just be a racial IQ growth in the body of Christ. Yeah, that's so good. Like I was going to ask you, what does reconciliation look like to you? But you just nailed that. It looks like when uh, <laughs> white folk is submit to... <laughs> That's right. Submit That's right. Leadership. And to you create don't... true equity, we have to truly shift the balance of power. It cannot simply just be white people in power lifting up um, people of color. Equity and inclusion is not just lifting up, it's it's leveling the playing field. So the strange thing to me is, is that the university turned its back on you and doubled down on the equity, which just melted the whole place down. Is that, well, is that a correct way to look at it? That is yes. a correct way to look at it. And not, not just that, but the Attorney General's office, um, and specifically the Assistant Attorney General that was working on this case on behalf of the college, had clearly uh, accepted and internalized the whole equity argument. And basically, it seemed that she thought she was dealing with a couple of no-good racists who the college would be better off without. Are you kidding me? So there's institutions and, and even right up to government that, were, that threw you guys under the bus? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's... I have to say, I keep being invited to talk about free speech on college campuses, and every time I'm invited, I make the same point, which is this isn't about free speech, and this is only tangentially about college campuses. This is about a breakdown in the basic logic of civilization, and it's spreading. And college campuses may be the first dramatic battle, but of course this is going to find its way into the courts. It's already found its way into the tech sector. Um, It's going to find its way to the highest levels of governance, if we're not careful, and it actually does jeopardize the ability of civilization to continue to function. How has it gotten to this point? Uh, In part, it has gotten to this point because we let it fester. These ideas were wrong when they first took hold in the academy. And instead of shutting them down, we created phony fields that act as a kind of analytical affirmative action, where ideas that do not deserve to survive are given sustenance These ideas are so toxic and so ill-conceived that to the extent that they are allowed to hold sway as if one truth is equal to every other truth, right? 
my truth is as good as your truth, to the extent that that idea is allowed to pervade other institutions on which civilization depends, civilization will come apart. So we have to fight this and don't get the sense that it is just about college campuses or kids overreacting because um, that ain't what this is. This is far more important than that. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm your host, Malbatos. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. Um, if you are new, welcome. If you're not new, welcome. <laughs> I'm glad you could join me. I appreciate all of my listeners who uh, look forward to listening to this podcast every couple of weeks as much as I can get them out. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, but I also wanted to mention that since I kind of what I do is more based on books and studies that come into the women's ministry, if, if you found this uh, either podcast through doing a search on Google or you found the YouTube videos that I uh, put on the channel because Be The Bridge has come into your church and you just have these kind of questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Hopefully this uh, podcast gives you a good resource to help you understand what is taught at Be The Bridge and things like that. Um, but I mentioned this pretty much because I am hoping in the next, well, the next episode to be my final episode about Be The Bridge. And then I can give my assessment about the If Gathering um, and just kind of wrap that all up. I have done so much study and I'm sure I'm going to do even more study as this kind of teaching enters into the church, especially the seeker sensitive church is just becoming more and more liberal. Basically, I want to produce more episodes that address certain specific teachings that have been pushed through progressive Christianity and those that are entering into seeker-sensitive churches, just because that's more of my background. Um, so it's something I feel that I can speak into. And hopefully I can plan this next season accordingly. So keep me in prayer. But if you are new and reached uh, this podcast because of a search and you are dealing with Be The Bridge in your own church, please feel free to reach out to me. Email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. I can give you some good um, resources that might help you in fighting this in your church, as, long, uh, as well as having prayer, because I'm just praying deeply for people who I know have been affected by this in their church, and just praying for people I don't know as well. It's really um, a tough battle that we are dealing with here with the critical race theory and all of this entering the church, this kind of woke liberal ideology. But for this episode, um, if you are new, just informing you that we have been making our way through the Be the Bridge 101 foundational principles every white bridge builder needs to understand discussion guide. That was very long <laughs> title, but that's what it is. It's a discussion guide for white people. Uh, we are looking at their steps for white people who wish to work towards a racial righteousness. 
And while the Be the Bridge Guide for White People presents the seeds of the anti-racist racist teachings, and that's really what they are, in the final paragraphs of this guide, they reveal the end goal of the ministry as a whole, and that is to fundamentally change the church under the guise of fighting the white supremacy within it. So under step four, the final step in the guide, which is titled Recognizing White Supremacy, they state this, quote, For many of us, when we hear the term white supremacy, what comes to mind is visions of men in white robes and burning crosses, neo-Nazi canheads, or extremists like Dylan Wolf, who in 2015 entered the historically Black Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina with a gun and killed nine members. But the ideology of white supremacy is much more widespread and insidious than those specific images. White supremacy can be incredibly challenging for white people to see. We know it's wrong to be explicitly racist. However, we can easily miss the ways our worldview is subtly shaped by a sense of white superiority or white is right. In many ways, it is neutral for both white people and people of color to feel this way. White supremacy has had centuries to embed itself in our country's consciousness, therefore normalizing it. We have been socialized into our culture in such a way that we believe it is simply the way things have always been. The work of racial bridge building demands that we root out white supremacist ideology, especially from the church. Now, I'm going to interrupt this quote here to just say, notice where the focus is. It's to root out our white supremacy within the church. That is the point of this guide. So what is white supremacy according to Be the Bridge? Taking their definition from Elizabeth Martinez, another feminist and anti-racist activist, they quote from her essay, What is White Supremacy? Quote, white supremacy is a historically based, institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of continents, nations, and peoples of color by white peoples and nations of the European continent for the purpose of maintaining and defending a system of wealth, power, and privilege, end quote, page 17. Remember from previous episodes, and if you haven't listened to those previous episodes, I suggest you do. We are going through this guide, looking at their uh, presuppositions and their arguments, and then I talk about them with a Christian worldview and using scripture and things like that. But anyway, so in my previous episodes, they talk about white supremacy, and they describe white supremacy uh, or they don't describe white supremacy, but white supremacy, as we dive in, we start to realize that they are ideologies, beliefs, or worldviews that have been dominant in European culture, which critical theory and be the bridge claim have racist foundations. Now, what's really interesting here is that a lot of our European ideologies and beliefs were kind of built on Christianity. Not all of them, but most of what we believe today, certain things like meritocracy, liberalism, like classical liberalism, um, not today's modern liberalism, that's a whole nother topic, but uh, these way that we do justice, our, our judicial system, the way our government is run, a democracy, our views, they were those were built on Christian Judeo standards and ethics and morals. 
he started out with this idea of we need to divest ourselves of whiteness. And when I say we, I mean like society, the, the culture has this idea of divesting yourself from whiteness. It was things like being on time. Like, <laughs> I didn't be on time. And be black. Like, really, you know, or um, just the, like, um, yeah, disrespecting authority, ha being polite. Being polite was on there. What are you trying to say about black people? Wow. Really? You know, um, you know, holding certain holidays, holding certain religions and things like that, but the or religious practices, the sacraments and things like that. It's like what they're saying, what they're doing is they're taking the idea of whiteness, which at one time was just the structures that continue to hold black people down. And they've moved that into overlapping with the Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. So now what you're going to soon see is that whiteness is going to be removed and the Judeo-Christian worldview mm -hmm. is going to be put in that place. So now instead of people saying whiteness is wicked, they're going to say the Judeo-Christian framework is wicked. Mm -hmm. Now you don't need to divest yourself of your whiteness. You need to divest yourself of the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's going to be a problem. Now that we understand that racism, the term racism, the definition of it has changed. It's no longer about hatred or enmity against a certain ethnicity, but our racism are actually ideology, beliefs, structures, systems that people claim perpetuate inequality or unequal power, privileges, and resources. And that these structures and systems are built on philosophies and certain beliefs, which critical theory, critical race theory, that equates them as white supremacist ideology. You know, these things, like I said before, as individualism, meritocracy, classical liberalism, binary thinking, patriarchy, et cetera, and et cetera. Now that we understand that these are certain beliefs and understandings that we can draw out from God's word, we can understand now that they're stating or implying that we should challenge these and they should be rooted out. Okay. Now, Western culture has historically had its problems. There's no denying that. We should all look into the beliefs that brought on some of the evils, such as slavery. The bridge leaders and teachers continually, and I mean repeatedly, uh, want to claim that the white Christian church has supported slavery, helped institute it, perpetuated teachings supporting the subjugation of people of color, and holds the belief that white is right and wants to quote, defend a system of wealth, power, and privilege. These are the claims they are making against the American church, and not just American church, obviously, it would be all European church. It is this narrative that's always put forward of the lack of involvement in the American church to end slavery that they use to, to encourage or incite the church nowadays to do something about racism. But again, it's the racism that was dealt with 200 years ago is not the same racism that we're dealing with now. The definitions have changed. Before, the church was arguing against and fighting against actual enslavement of individuals of a different ethnicity. Now, uh, the call is to become anti-racist and fight against any type of power dynamics that do not produce equity. Okay? Um... And what really kind of bothers me in all the narrative that I've heard, and I've listened to so many podcast episodes, read the book, read the Whiteness 101, listened to uh, Be the Bridge, or I'm sorry, not Be the Bridge, but listened to Latasha Morrison being interviewed by other people. It's just the same narrative. And there has been no references, at least 
again, not in anything I've come across, to any idea that Christian denominations, such as the Baptist and Methodist denomination, even the Quakers, were the first to form anti-slavery societies. These were formed as early as the founding of our nation after the Revolutionary War. A little tangent here, but I think there are several reasons which I believe are false assumptions and presuppositions for why Be the Bridge thinks that the church fought against the abolitionist movement. One, they take an anti-racist lens to societal changes. They adopt the teaching that there is no neutrality in this fight. This is going to have an effect on the way they look at history. Therefore, if the church didn't actively take a stance or actively work for change through laws and institutions, then that church was complicit in racism. And complicity in racism is to be racist. So by their worldview, unless the early American church was actively anti-racist, then that meant they actually wanted to keep slavery. From this, a following assumption is made, that change is made through activism. This would not have been the view of the church at the time. Change, the real change Christians want by scriptural standards happens in the heart, individual by individual. And the church would have been training Christians that love does not forcibly enslave another based on skin. They would have been drawing out from scripture the image of God in everyone. They would have been battling the spiritual battle for the mind and the hearts of people to receive the gospel and align their thinking with scripture. Now, that doesn't mean Christians didn't actively get involved in changing laws or working with uh, policies to produce more laws that would actually bring slavery to an end. But most of the American church would be doing what they were called to do. The pastors and the laity inside the church are not everybody's called to be politicians. Not everybody's called to, you know, um, actively worked towards changing laws. The church itself, its institutional role is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and teach them and train them to be like Christ. So that would be the goal of the actual churches. Another false assumption I see at play would be communication and time, the way and speed at which these scriptural teachings, remember that that's what the church is trying to do, disciple its uh, congregants to be like Christ, and how these teachings would have spread to affect societal changes. We today in our 21st century lens can think that change can and should happen fast. It only took decades after the civil rights movement to institute laws such as affirmative action to grant privilege to people of color. I think we think this is how quickly action to make changes have always been. And therefore it's assumed that because changes were not so quick, no action actually took place. But this is just not true. I mean, just think about this a little deeper. One of the main reasons change can happen so quickly in an institutional level is because of communication and now the speed at which we can communicate. Newspapers and printing and other types of communication, those companies that do this have a drastic effect on how information is distributed. Think even about this. The amount of universities even has an impact on how information is given in education and opens up the door to not only discussion, but spreading of information regarding these things. You do not have this in the early foundings with state of American history. Communication is slow, so change is slow. Universities are small and spare, so education on slavery really only came by way of 
churches and how was communication between one church group and another and another state. That's just one factor in the equation here for the slowness and bringing in the abolition of slavery. But regardless, truth is that it is those same Christian Western ideals like individualism, classical liberalism, meritocracy, and binary thinking that actually helped people understand that slavery was just plain unloving and evil. And it was the Western world that worked to eradicate slavery as we know it today. They were the first ones to combat it. While other collectivist nations such as North Korea, Communist China, and Russia, and others still have slaves and rehabilitation camps, which force people into slavery because of leashes or presumed treason instead of color of skin. Anyway, that was a separate rant. All to say that really the roots of the abolitionist movement were founded on Western ideas that we got from scripture, and the American and European churches had a vast hand in it. Though change was a hundred times slower, probably, that doesn't mean the church didn't have a hand in it. The abolitionist movement was a religious movement at its core, and Be the Bridge just wants to perpetuate a narrative of the American church not only not doing anything, but avidly fighting against the abolitionists. And I'm sure that there were probably churchgoers and people who called themselves Christians who actually were fighting against abolitionists. But the overarching narrative is just not true, even though they will continually state that Be the Bridge focuses on telling the truth. And this narrative is used to bring white people into a guilty conscience and insist that they step up and become anti-racist activists and accomplices, not only within the community, but especially within the church. But back to the guide. So according to Be the Bridge, what is the way forward for white people on combating white supremacy that is in our churches? Quote, there is only one way forward if we truly want to throw off the chains of white supremacy that have bound the white American church for 400 years. There is only one path to choose to finally move to the right side of history. This path includes the submission of ourselves to people of color, Christian leadership. We must begin to heed their voices, listen to their stories, and learn their theologies. We must abandon our white Jesus and our white savior complex. This is the only way forward to recognize and embrace the true savior and receive forgiveness and healing from those on the margins, end quote. Can I just let my breath out here because this quote is so just so very unbiblical but anyway i'm gonna interject notice what's assumed here that white supremacy has bound the american church for 400 years it's so entrenched in our churches we white people can't even see it we're bound to a white jesus and a white savior complex who obviously in their eyes is a false jesus now there are many false jesuses out there first let's just Cast aside this comment about a white Jesus. That's really a straw man as uh, Jesus' skin color doesn't matter. The question is, what do they believe is being taught about this Jesus that we need to abandon? Do we abandon the Jesus that teaches that we are to die to sin? That we are to obey his commands as given in scripture? Do we need to abandon the idea that only through the Jesus of scripture is it that we can be saved? Only through his blood sacrifice? Are we washed of our sins? Or do we need to believe in a Jesus who was a revolutionary, a social justice warrior, declaring the kingdom of heaven will come through diversity, equity, and inclusion within the church? 
dive into the Jesus that they present, and he is the anti-racist Jesus that James Cones claims came to liberate people from oppression. White Christians, too, this is implied here in this quote, our salvation is on the line here. We have to, like we heard Eric Mason and Latasha Morrison say in the opening clip, we have to submit to black leaders. We have to learn their theologies, insinuating that without their stories and theologies, we cannot recognize and embrace the true savior. To them, this is true equity. Like we heard, it's one thing to have diversity, but be the bridge's goal is to produce equity within businesses, high schools, universities, and churches. In the church, you will have those challenging Christian ideas, especially if they imbibe be the bridge ideology, trying to claim that anti-racism should be a discipleship issue and trying to bring on anti-racist activism within it. And then you have those holding fast to scripture, fighting the spirit of the age with God's word. Those who want to keep the church's focus on the gospel. They want to keep discipleship centered on Christ's word and desire to shape their worldview around these and God's law. So what's even more disheartening as I've read the books and listened to the Be the Bridge podcast is the possible arguments that may come back to somebody who wants to use scripture to point to the problems with racial reconciliation as being part of the gospel. The reactions boil down to, quote, of course you would present scripture that way. It's been whitewashed. Or, quote, that's white Christianity. Or, don't use scripture to support your fragility. Because we have been swimming in the water of white supremacy and don't see it, we can't even see what the full gospel is. Or we can't handle scripture rightly because we come at it with a white lens. We've been taught that Western culture has a white savior or a white superiority foundation, and this foundation has influenced all our so-called white theology. So because of our white supremacist foundation in the church, we are unrighteous when it comes to unity and the diversity that God desires for his kingdom. We white people are more than just unrighteous. We are so prideful and self-centered that when our sin of white privilege and white superiority is challenged, we resort to white fragility. But finally, the guide states this, quote, Our calling as white bridge builders is to disrupt American Christian power structures and call others to do the same. Like most giant leaps of faith, Choosing this path will require humility, confession, repentance, trust, loss, and a reorientation of our worldview. If we can change ourselves, we can change the church. If we can change the church, we can change the nation. End quote, page 19. So now, understanding that racism is not the only belief that one ethnicity is better than another, but is the systematic advantages involving cultural messages the misuse of power, and institutional bias, we can conclude that certain messages within the church may be determined to be racist if they are held to. An example presented before was individualism, one determined by anti-racist to be a construct to whiteness and should be challenged. Instead of thinking that the Bible teaches that each individual will be held accountable for their own sin, be the bridge implies that maybe we need to take a more collectivist view of sin. If we start understanding the image of God is displayed differently in different ethnicities, and they state this in her book, Be the Bridge, which I talk about in one of the first episodes in dealing with Be the Bridge. If we understand that God displays these ethnicities differently and his image is displayed differently in them, then they can say it's a form of ethnic oppression to not let that ethnicity 
display its image in a certain way, okay? To end this oppression within the church, leadership in the church must reflect the ethnic image of God equitably. Headship and authority, as laid out in scripture, is the white construct being challenged in all that Be the Bridge does. Because of the power dynamics and the whole critical race theory, underpinnings of um, power and oppression, obviously headship and authority is going to be the key issue that they're going to try and undermine. Their job is to call on whites under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion to leverage their white privilege and authority in the church to others who are willing to challenge the faith handed down to us, the theology and scriptural truths the church has held to since its foundation. Now, this will lead to all sorts of slippery slopes within the church. If headship and authority should be critiqued through a racial lens, what about the other minorities in the intersections of oppression? How about age and gender being able to challenge authority? Shouldn't the church consider their voices and theology in the church? Children and women are people. Elders could leverage church authority too as well. I mean, we have kind of already seen this in the gender area, but we are even now starting to see it in the age area too, as fringe charismatic churches give authority and power to children who they identify as apostles, prophets, and preachers. This slope will, and already has, open wide the doors to be inclusive to gay and lesbian leaders, a perfect recent example is crew, and those within the transgender, queer, and plus plus intersections. You will continue to see the discussion of allowing these into leadership as long as they are celibate and claim to pursue Christ's likeness through love, acceptance, tolerance, and inclusion. This is their idea of holiness. Keep this in mind for my conclusion of this episode. Ultimately, they state that the challenge of church authority in this way will change the church, and they are right about that. And in changing the church, it will change the nation. That is what they are hoping for, an anti-racist utopia saved by an activism springing forth from a social gospel with a Messiah who liberates from oppression, not sin. But I want to take a short glance at some of these leaders they want us to listen to. These other voices and stories and theologies they believe should be given equitable space and authority to enter the church so we may come to know the quote-unquote true savior. This very guide provides direct links to these articles and books in the downloadable version for whites to be informed in these people of color's voices, stories, and their theologies. People such as psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum, social psychologist, theologian, and activist Christina Cleveland, author of God is a Black Woman. I embarked on a journey that became God is a Black Woman because deep down inside, I needed to believe that my Black and female body is sacred too. And so I set out on a journey across France to this region that is known for its devotion to the Black Madonnas. And I walked over 400 miles so I could encounter 18 different Black Madonnas in these tiny mountain villages. And I allowed each one to transform me, transform my relationship to my body, transform my relationship to my understanding of who is sacred and what is profane. Ah, it's a glorious experience to be on this journey. And I really hope you join me in journeying towards God as a Black woman. W.E. Dubois, an upper-class free Black communist, other feminist and anti-racist activists such as Peggy McIntosh, Robin D'Angelo, and Elizabeth Martinez, and the father of Black liberation theology, James H. Cohn, who presents not only a different theology, 
but a completely different gospel which cannot save. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Bringing forth black theology and black power saved me from a meaningless theological career. It was a transforming experience, empowering me to write with a clarity and power that even surprised me. And since that Kairos moment, I have been reading and thinking and writing almost daily. Be the Bridge reveals that they do not believe that scripture is authoritative on oppression, justice, and issues regarding race. To them, it's not sufficient enough to identify our sins and bring reconciliation. But we need other so-called truths from the sociological and psychological observations of man. Christians who go into this ministry need to ask if these anti-racist teachers are worth being yoked with. Are they believers? Do they believe that by faith in the finished work of Christ, we, especially white people, are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness because we are called to not partner with them? especially in working with unbelievers to disciple others and what it means to be God's people. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Second Corinthians six fourteen to 7, 1. The level of discernment within the Be the Bridge ministry is completely out the window. Where the rubber really meets the road is that Be The Bridge and its teachings have no choice but to produce racism. One, it imposes, like we saw in the last episode, a psychological and moral inferiority upon a color of people, and it is only focused on the color. Even identifying people of certain non-European descent whose flesh is lighter in color as white passing and receiving of privileges based on the color proximity of their skin to being white. Two, since one group has psychological and moral inferiority, then the other group has psychological and moral superiority and need to come together in solidarity and mutuality. These words are used over and over again to rally the BIPOC community in unity under the shared historical past of victimhood and oppression of whiteness and this white savior complex. This solidarity and Be the Bridge's goal in working with the BIPOC community is to not only unify them, but show them how to divest of whiteness that they were socialized into, but to show them how to work together to fight the oppression and receive reparations and equitable power. They want to raise them up as leaders in businesses, organizations, but especially within the church. So remember, this is more of a DEI training program, not just for whites, but in regards to the BIPOC community, it trains them to be anti-racist and then enter the church as leaders in which this DEI or be the bridge is coming in not only to the church to say, okay, let's level the playing field here. Let's distribute power equally, 
We're going to train your white people to submit to people of color. And we are going to um, train the BIPOC community within our ministry or this DEI training program to take on this anti-racist uh, beliefs and ideologies. So under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they are suppressing white people from power and raising up people of color who hold to their beliefs, hold to this ideology. And remember that equity does not come about by meritocracy in this system, right? So when they go to hire people of color, it's not based on their performance and a meritocratic way of coming at um, knowing whether they're right for leadership. It's based on merely skin color because the equity they demand is based on the color of skin What's even more sad, even irrational, is that it's based on race, a social construct they claim is unscientific, which it is, and used to oppress people, yet they grasp onto it to ultimately make claims on groups of people and use it as a form of identifying and making judgments about individuals. And then they use race to make changes to the hierarchy or the, the authority in these institutions. So the diversity goals that these institutions will strive for will not be based on, again, the meritocratic um, ideas, those based on studying hard work and, you know, other good values, Christian ideas and values. But these people are equipped in cultural and racial intelligence, which is, again, another term you'll hear over and over again about needing to have a cultural and racial IQ. And not just a cultural and racial IQ, but being able to represent, meaning their lived experience, should be unified with the other experiences of people of the same race. Or like we talked about before, the um, standpoint epistemology, where they universalize standpoint epistemology. So one person, a BIPOC person, or let's just say a Black person, who's had the racism or been oppressed, represents the black community. And really, this boils down to beliefs, morals, and ideologies of the black consciousness or the Native American consciousness or an Asian consciousness. Um, each person in leadership is to represent the ethnic and racial collective they are identified as. But only those who take on the oppressor-oppressed power dynamic worldview. Because of these three beliefs, when Be the Bridge, these three beliefs being um, the white fragility or this, that whites are psychologically and morally inferior, the belief that the blacks or BIPOC community is morally and psychologically uh, superior, especially when it comes to race, and that equity is about the leveling of power among the racial uh in a racial hierarchy, because of three three beliefs, when Be the Bridge and any other DEI training program comes into an institution, that institution is training its people to be true racists. And within Christian institutions, separate Christians of white or white passing skin color from BIPOC Christians, training and insisting that white people basically shut up, are to humble themselves, submit to BIPOC leaders, learn from people of color, and become not just allies, but accomplices who spread the this hateful, humbling rhetoric 
regarding whites. They teach other white people of their white fragility and complicity and oppression, calling them to action in raising up the BIPOC community by distributing power, privilege, and authority to those who believe and imbibe the anti-racist ideas applied to their collective race. In this, they are undermining God and rebelling against his chosen people who he chooses not based on anything springing forth from their person, but he chooses, calls, and equips them for the work. Be the bridge and all other DEI agents desire to place people in authority not based on God's calling and equipping, but based on their calling and equipping. So as I read the last two paragraphs of this guide, informing me of Be the Bridge's goal to challenge the traditional church authority, I thought about Cora's rebellion. And I believe it's pertinent here to the goal of Be the Bridge and is a warning to those who promote the teachings sprouting forth from this so-called Christian ministry. In number 16, we read the story of Cora and its challenging of the authority given by God to Moses and Aaron. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, tank censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Now I want to read an article on this from biblicalcounseling.com because I think they do a just great job at drawing out what is happening in this chapter and how to apply it to ourselves and this whole woke critical race theory ideology and the challenge of authority under the guise of racial reconciliation within the church. I believe Korah's rebellion is comparable to what we see playing out not only in society at large, but especially what I believe to be a rebellion against Christian ideals and standards within the church itself. So the author is Samuel Stevens. The link for this is in the show notes. And he writes, quote, After deferring to God, Moses points out Korah's hypocrisy and selfishness. Korah was born of the tribe of Levi and thus held a unique position among the nation of Israel. In verse 9, Moses points out that, as a Levite, Korah was uniquely distinguished from the rest of the kinsmen. The tribe of Levi was considered a special possession of the Lord, was set apart to serve the Lord in his tabernacle, and was privileged to minister to the rest of the tribes as a representative of God. Unfortunately, Korah had rejected each of the blessings that his status as a Levite afforded him because of his selfish ambition. Moses asked of Korah, 
And are you seeking for the priesthood also? This refers to the fact that only the sons of Aaron, of which Korah was not, were to fill the top roles in the priestly hierarchy. In this one statement, Moses identified the motivation behind Korah's rebellion. He was not satisfied with the hierarchy that God had previously established for the priesthood. The striking truth that Moses concludes his response with is that Korah's uprising against Moses and Aaron was actually directed at God. The narrative ends on a, in a day of judgment. Korah and the rebels on one side and Moses and Aaron on the other. These two groups were to approach the doorway to the tent of meeting, the place where God revealed his glory and his will to the people, each man with his own censer. This imagery is significant and should not be lost on us. The censer or fire pan was used in priestly worship to burn fire and incense. As a sweep aroma of the incense wafted in the air, it served as a visual representation of both the people's prayers lifted toward God and God's holy presence. It's important to note that it wasn't just Korah and Moses holding representative censers, but every man involved in this affair held their own. This suggests personal responsibility in the midst of corporate sin. All of this to say, the presence of these utensils marked this occasion as related to solemn worship of a holy God. The importance behind these tools of worship were not lost on the rebels and most certainly not lost on Korah. This should have been a clear designation for all involved to approach God with humility. This, however, was not the spirit in which Korah arrived to meet with God. Moses recalls, Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them, that's against Moses and Aaron, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Up to the last moment, Korah continued to stir rebellion among the people against God's chosen servants. Korah's pride, arrogance, and foolishness is starkly contrasted with God's holiness, righteousness, and purity. The rebels' actions proved Moses' earlier statement that Korah's complaint and restlessness was not aimed at two men, but toward God. So how did God respond to this act of pride? He responded in two ways that are consistent with his character. Initially, God was prepared to destroy the entire congregation, but Moses and Aaron prostrated themselves and advocated for the congregation. They pleaded, O oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Now, don't forget that these people in the congregation were rightfully guilty. It allowed Korah and his band of rebels to stir their hearts towards dissatisfaction and distrust of God's leaders, and thus God himself. Regardless, God heard the intercessory prayers of his servants, and he responded with mercy and forgiveness. However, this does not mark the end of the story. Due to God's justice, sinful rebellion cannot go unpunished. In one act of terrible wrath and judgment, God both punishes the guilty and firmly establishes his servants. Moses stated, By this you should know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord bring about an entirely new things, and the ground opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. That was Numbers 16, 28-30. At this point, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, along with all of their possessions and families, are swallowed by the earth. In addition, the 250 men offering incense, who had joined the rebellion, were consumed by fire from God. This gruesome judgment was public for a reason. It served as a warning to the people that God did not tolerate a haughty spirit, a complaining tongue, and irreverent worship. As we consider the narrative in number 16, there are at least three points of application that we can bring to bear in our ministry to others. Discontentment breeds spiritual unrest, ingratitude, and arrogance. 
When we take our eyes off of Christ and settle them on speculations, fears, and fleshly desires, we open ourselves to a spirit of discontentment which is the opposite of the trusting and resting in God. Suddenly, his peace is not as accessible as it once was. His presence seems distant, and ultimately our service to him becomes compromised. Korah's greed did not accomplish a closer fellowship between God and his people. Instead of fostering intimacy, the sins of discontentment and pride only served to drive a wedge between them. Is that not a perfect example of what Be the Bridge insinuates in their, all their teachings? To be discontent with their lives and to blame whites for what they have in the way their life is. That was just my interjection there, but back to the article. The good news is that through Christ, God has provided to us peace that surpasses understanding, intimacy that brings us sweet fellowship, and power to grow in righteousness. Okay, the second application here is grumbling and complaining are never harmless. The deception of sin like the like these is that they seem harmless. If we are honest, many of us have even grown comfortable with sins like these in our own lives. However, like all sin, these snares always produce the fruit of active rebellion against God and often breed unrest in the hearts of those around us. Korah enlisted the help of his friends and incited many who came up against God's chosen leaders. We must remember that God will not be mocked. We chose to foster discontent in our own hearts and so in those around us we will indeed be held responsible for our sin, but others may also suffer the consequences as well. The third and final application is pride leads to spiritual blindness and a rejection of truth. This should go without saying, but the pride of life is not from God, nor does it honor him as God. However, pride often takes forms that are not as recognizable as the brazen pride that we may picture. In many instances, pride can be disguised by seemingly honorable reasons. Korah's complaint against Moses and Aaron was grounded on his belief that since the entire nation of Israel was considered holy, then no one should be seen as more exalted than anyone else. My interjecting here, I think there's a direct correlation within the progressive church of this understanding that since everybody equally uh, has this image of God, everybody is made holy. And since everybody's made holy, everybody's opinions, theologies, and um, ideas and understandings should have equal say. I think that's where this kind of uh, logic would take you. They even go as far as using God's very name and presence to support their grievances. Yep, that's what we see going on. Using God to produce justice and an uh, inequity of power within the church. However, Korah's pretense was soon revealed as selfish ambition. Prideful and arrogant living results in twisting God's word for our benefit, thus rejecting our need of God and placing the crown on our own heads. There is no blessing in prideful living. God blesses the humble and rejects the arrogant. So these are going to be quite strong words coming from my mouth here, but I truly believe Be the Bridge is in direct rebellion against God. They no longer want to learn of the Holy One of Israel or hear from the prophets who prophesy what is right, Isaiah 38-18. Instead, they turn to men. They want to tear down the foundation and give license to the preaching of a different gospel. Ladies stay far, far, far away from the Be the Bridge ministry. Any ministry, really, that wants to train you on racial reconciliation and not train you to hold fast to the good that is the gospel and its foundation and teachings from the apostles and prophets, stay away from it. Christ is your righteousness. There's no need to educate yourself 
on America's racist history and the lived experiences of people of color or to develop a white identity to leverage privilege so we can earn racial righteousness as taught by Latasha Morrison and other racial reconciliationalists or anti-racists. Instead, identify as a sinner in need of God's grace. Root your righteousness in Christ's finished and perfect work and trust and exalt in his power, authority, sovereignty, and superiority over all creation. And be thankful for the privileges that come from being adopted into the family of God and the spiritual advantages that God has granted to his people. Be content with Christ. Be more than just content. Be in praise and always give thanks for the means that God has given through the Son. Exalt God in what he has done for us. Be grateful for the reconciliation brought to us through Christ and clothe ourselves with his righteousness, not racial righteousness. Christ's righteousness is more perfect than any righteousness Latasha Morrison or any other Be the Bridge Builder wants you to strive for. While Latasha Morrison, Bridge Builders, and other anti-racists want you to work for righteousness by forming an identity around your race, relieving white people of their privileges, and granting privileges to people of color, get a righteousness by decentering whiteness and rejecting white fragility and humility, and fighting against all forms of white supremacy within the church. That's the righteousness they want you to work for. The truth that sets us free from what they deem the work is that the righteousness of Christ is not earned, but given as a gift to those who trust in Christ. It's a perfect righteousness, not one set on racial reconciliation, but one set in perfect compliance and obedience to God's law, which performs perfect love. In Christ, there is no greater righteousness in which to form our identity. In Christ, there is no greater privilege than being a son of God. In Christ, there is no greater strength than fragility, faith, and reliance on our Heavenly Father. And in Christ, there is no greater power than God's word to fight all forms of oppression and injustice in this world. You do not need Be The Bridge or any other anti-racist DEI training. All you need is Christ. And that's why I pray you are in His word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me. 
as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.